Once upon a time, a young man had everything he wanted. He was born in Algeria in northern Africa, and he was born to a pagan dad and Christian mom. He was what every aspiring social climber wanted to be. He was a ladies' man. He was absolutely brilliant, trained in Latin, the official language of the Roman Empire. He even landed a teaching position in Milan. At just 30 years old, he won one of the most respected positions in the academy. You could say that he had everything he wanted, but he was dissatisfied. He lived with unmet desires. And my bet is that if you're watching this, you know what it's like to have unmet desires. You wanted to get married, but every romantic relationship you've had has come to an end. You wanted to have kids, but all the fertility treatments you've tried haven't worked. You wanted a job that would give back to the world and would give you kind of an inner sense of purpose and meaning, but you're stuck doing something you hate. You wanted more time with a loved one, but their life ended suddenly. You imagined a family that you would be proud of, but right now it's in disarray. And whether you have good or bad desires, my bet is that you know this life doesn't always give you them. Our cultures promise that you'll get whatever you want if you seek it is empty. You can look for distraction if you go on Netflix, and you can find it for a while only to realize that it makes you feel worse, not better. You can look for casual sex and maybe even find it, but you end up spending more time scrolling through apps and feeling lonelier than ever. You can look for a new husband or a new wife in order to leave your family behind, but then you're stuck with other imperfect humans. Whatever we want, good or bad, we often live on a day-to-day -day basis with unmet desires. And there are a few conclusions you can draw from that about life. You can think, well, maybe I just need to double down. If I can't get what I want, it's because I'm not trying hard enough. It, maybe I can find a self-help book and figure out a technique to actually get what I want. Or maybe you just accept the fact that life is full of unmet desires, but the only way to cope with it is just to get the most out of life, get what you want when you have the chance. Or maybe you just come to the conclusion that life's unmet desires are exactly why any kind of belief in God is false. If a good God existed, he wouldn't allow a life like this. Christians, or any other religious people for that matter, are just projecting their unmet desires on a divine screen, a God who isn't real. But maybe there's a better way to approach unmet desires. I think it starts with understanding us, human beings, as more than just physical creatures. We are more than just big walking clumps of cells. And because we're more than just physical creatures, we have more than just physical desires. But I'm already getting ahead of myself, so let's rewind, let's return to the story we heard from the Gospel of John. If you haven't watched this series so far, we've been looking at the miracles that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. In the first half 
of this book that's about the life of Jesus, Jesus performs a lot of miracles, and John refers to them as signs. What he means by that is these are more than just demonstrations of power. They are signs and indications of his identity, of who he really is. So if you want to know Jesus, if you want to know what the first followers of Jesus thought about him, then look at these signs. Come and see what Jesus did and find out who he is. So, Many of us have probably heard of the story of the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Whether you're a Christian or not, you may have heard that story. And isolated from the rest of the Bible, it's a really interesting tale. It may seem like a legend to you, but connected to the rest of the Bible, I think it shows us and gives us an answer to one of life's most meaningful questions, which is, what do we do with our unmet desires? So, in order to answer that question, I'm actually going to skip over the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and go to centuries before the time of Jesus to the time of Moses. If you don't know who Moses is, Moses was chosen by God as a leader of his people, Israel, the Jews. And he chose Moses to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. God sent Moses to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, with a message, which was this, the Israelites do not belong to you. They belong to God. They belong to Yahweh. So Pharaoh, you must let them go. And Pharaoh says, that is a fascinating idea, Moses. Thanks, but no thanks. I have no interest in giving over free labor to you. I like my slaves as they are. So God, to punish Pharaoh and his cruel treatment of his slaves, sends plagues upon Egypt 10 in a row, eventually wearing Pharaoh out. And Pharaoh just, he's so exhausted, he's so miserable from this that he tells Moses to take the Israelites as far away as possible. He doesn't want them in his sight. So the Israelites book it out of Egypt. They waste no time at all, and they think that they're in the clear when all of a sudden they look back and see that all of Pharaoh's armies are bearing down on them. They are stuck with Pharaoh's armies on one side and the Red Sea on the other side of them. They're stuck in the middle. But God, with his divine power, parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk all the way through it. And as soon as they get to the other side, God allows the waters to crash in upon the Egyptians and Israel's enemies are defeated. And they think after centuries of slavery that they are finally free. That is, until 72 hours into their newfound freedom that they can't find water or food. And so they can't believe that they have left slavery in Egypt only to die out in the wilderness. So they get a group together and they file a complaint with their leader, Moses, and they say, look, when we were slaves, it may not have been good food, but we ate all the food that we wanted. And now that we're free, all we're free to do is starve. And God, in his grace, hears their complaint and answers their complaint with a miracle. The next morning, all of the Israelites wake up and find the desert littered with bread, this flaky substance on the ground. And Moses explains that this manna comes from heaven, from God, So each morning they would wake up and they would find bread on the ground, and each evening God would send them quail, meat to eat. So 
God gives this starving and grumbling and complaining people bread and meat to eat every single day in the wilderness. Now, nearing the end of his life, Moses tells the people that God has actually made a promise to them through Moses. He says that God would raise up a prophet like Moses among the Israelites. Moses told them over and over again, you need to listen to this prophet. And it might have seemed like at the time that that was going to be Moses' successor, Joshua. That this man who led them in the conquest of the land, of the promised land that God gave them, would be this prophet. And they needed to listen to Joshua, but that's actually not true. Joshua is not the promised prophet. The Israelites would have to wait a very long time for the prophet like Moses. Centuries later, way after when Moses is dead and gone, the Israelites actually find themselves under occupation again. The new regime is called the Roman Empire. The new Pharaoh is called Caesar. And because of this occupation, because of the fact that they feel like they've rewound all the way back to their time in slavery, the Jews reread the story of Exodus, and they, they start with God's promise. Maybe one day there's going to be a new Moses. And they conclude from that that if there's a new Moses, then there's going to be a new Exodus. That only makes sense. And if there's going to be a new Exodus, they conclude there's going to be new manna. Jews believed that this was all one package deal. This was all God's divine operation. One day, he's going to send a new Moses. He's going to, send, he's going to give a new exodus, and he's going to give new manna. Now, one of the first apostles of Jesus was a Jew named John, and he believed this. And he writes a story 2,000 years ago that we can read today that we read at the beginning of this sermon. It's a story about a man named Jesus whose Hebrew name is Yeshua or Joshua. And it just so happens that Yeshua's story takes place on a mountain around the time of Passover. And he miraculously feeds a large and hungry crowd with bread and meat. John is trying to connect the dots here. He's trying to paint a crystal clear image. Centuries before Jesus, centuries before John, God had miraculously intervened on behalf of his hungry people, and he gave them manna in the morning and quail in the evening. And now Jesus, who's on a mountain, is giving to God's hungry people bread and fish. Jesus is the promised prophet that Moses talked about all those centuries before. He is the new Moses. And the crowd knows this. When we read this story, I'm sure you heard the verse. They say, surely he is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they want to investigate. They say to Jesus when he's teaching at a nearby synagogue, what sign will you give us so that we will see it and believe you. They even give Jesus a hint at what he should say. He, they say, by the way, our ancestors ate manna in the desert. They're asking him, if you're the new Moses and you're going to lead some new exodus, are you going to give new manna? And Jesus answers their question, but not in the way they expect. 
Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The new Moses doesn't just bring new manna. He is the new manna. Now, this is the plot twist, and the crowd does not like it. They are not happy about it. They grumble about Jesus. They shake their heads in anger. We're told that on hearing what Jesus says, many of his disciples, people who actually followed him, say out loud, this is a hard teaching. This is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? And Jesus responds, does this offend you? Does this really offend you? And they don't even bother to give an answer. They simply turn back and no longer follow Jesus. This is the first time in, the, in John's gospel that his disciples leave him. Just picture that for a second. There's this packed synagogue, and they're excited because this is supposed to be the new Moses, and he could lead a new exodus, and he could give new manna, but when he gives the answer that they're not expecting, they walk away. Just imagine this empty synagogue with 12 men left. And Jesus turns to them and says, do you want to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, what in the world does this passage have to do with unmet desires? Well, remember that these signs that Jesus performs, like feeding the 5,000, are not just to show that Jesus can perform miracles. They're to show who he is. He's not just a miracle worker. He's the new Moses. He's not just a magician who's tricking people. He's leading a new exodus out of slavery to sin. He's not a military man actually coming in for a conquest. He has already defeated our enemy Satan, and he really does provide new manna. The new manna that he provides is something we call communion. Now, if you've never been to one of our services, you'll notice that at the end of our worship, where all of our worship is headed, is to the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. You've probably heard many different terms from it, and you might think, it's really strange that Christians stop praying and they stop singing and they do that just to eat a piece of a cracker and drink a little grape juice. But we do that because Jesus instituted a meal of bread and wine with his disciples on the night before he died. And he told them that they would have to partake in that meal to remember him. And while celebrating that meal, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said to them, take this and divide it among you. And that is exactly what he does in the feeding of the 5,000. He takes the five loaves that were given to him, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he divides it and gives it to the crowd. What John is telling us is that the miracle performed 2,000 years ago tells us something about what we do each and every Sunday when we have communion. Jesus fed the multitude and filled their stomachs 2,000 years ago. But each Sunday, Jesus feeds us spiritually with the bread and the cup of communion. When we celebrate the Lord's table, God is giving us 
the new manna. And the point is not to feed physical hunger because it doesn't do that. It feeds our spiritual hunger. Jesus says that if we don't eat this meal, if we don't partake in communion, we have no life in us. We may have full stomachs, but without communion, we have empty souls. That's why that this is such good news for anyone who lives with unmet desires. The problem with trying to meet all of our unmet desires is that our spiritual desires cannot be met in any way other than what Christ gives. No matter what you have in this life, whether you're rich or poor, if you have family, friends, a fulfilling career, a wife, a husband, love, romance, unending entertainment, a beautiful house, worldwide travel, wealth, fame, and honor, none of those things can meet your spiritual cravings. Trying to meet those spiritual desires with any kind of earthly fulfillment is like trying to end hunger by eating plastic. It doesn't work. It doesn't feed you. It will never feed you. This is why C.S. Lewis once said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's true. You were made for another world after this one. And the spiritual desire you have, the spiritual hunger you have, cannot be satisfied by anything in this world. Only Christ can feed you because the food has to fit the hunger. Your soul is malnourished without the new manna that Christ gives. Now, you may not be a Christian, and I, I think I know what you're thinking at this point, which means, you know, if this is true, why aren't Christians the most spiritually full people in the world, right? If they're enjoying communion each week and it's as special as, special as I seem to say it is, why aren't Christians different, if you, if, if you're not a Christian and you became a Christian, will, will your empty soul just magically be satisfied now that you have communion? The short answer is yes and no. Because what we receive in communion is a foretaste. It's a sample. It's a portion of what's to come. And I love that we just have a tiny piece of bread and a tiny sip of cup to show that what we have now in this life is a gift, but it's, it pales in comparison to what we'll get in the feast in the life to come. That's why the manna, we're told in Exodus, tasted like honey, because the promised land would be flowing with milk and honey. We receive in this life our portion in communion. We receive a grace through communion. But communion with God in this life doesn't compare to the satisfying communion with God in the next life. The famous church father, Augustine, was that young man who had everything. He had everything he wanted, at least on the surface, but he was dissatisfied. And in his dissatisfaction, he heard the gospel and he converted to Christianity, but he never said that in this life you'll experience full satisfaction. He didn't ever say that your soul's deepest desires are fully met here. He said, our hearts are restless until they rest 
in God. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. It is true that God graciously gives us this spiritual meal ahead of time to feed our starving souls, but it is an appetizer before the main course. Communion is this visible sign of an invisible gift. And when you receive it, when you take the bread and cup, when you eat the crackers and grape juice, we don't see Christ feeding our souls, but we trust him to give us that invisible gift. So that's what we do when we have unmet desires, whether they're good or bad. We stop trying to meet spiritual desires with earthly fulfillments. It just doesn't work. So instead of doing that, we receive the portion that Christ has decided to give us, and we patiently await the feast that is yet to come. Because we would rather have a soul full of communion than a belly full of bread. 